The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now look with me in God's word in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we, that is believers, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Ask and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Just a couple of thoughts here, uh, quickly. Uh, Comments first. Um, I am forever grateful for the wisdom of our elders. I don't know how many years ago it was, I guess 18 to 20 years, who came and said, hey, pastor, would you take we think it'd be a good idea before the coming of kind of when a year starts every year in August and September for you to take a, a study sabbatical and get ready for the next year, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been doing that. And it's, it was so refreshing physically, spiritually, and so many different ways. So I'm forever grateful for that. But I am even more glad to be back. Uh, just uh, my goodness, I, I sit here and, you know, John and Daniel and Hunter and the choirs and the praise team and you just to be together, particularly in Lord's Day worship, 
is just um, it's the it is the ultimate moment in my life on a regular basis, and so so glad to be back with you. We desperately missed you, but are grateful to be back. So that's one thing I wanted to say um, uh, to you. The other thing is this morning uh, a confession is I am uh, as we go back into Romans, I am both excited. And I am intimidated. And I really, uh, this isn't just preacher language. Uh, This is really personally and pastorally. I am both excited and I am intimidated. Let me tell you why I am excited and intimidated. Uh, In fact, I actually read again last night Paul's exhortation to Timothy as he stepped up to preach at Ephesus, he said, for we have not received a spirit of timidity, uh, a spirit of fear. But that's with me. And let me tell you why. Maybe it'll be understandable. Uh, we come back now. We have covered five chapters this last year in Romans. Paul's exposition of the gospel of God, the gospel of God, which he is eager to preach and unashamed to preach. And we've gone through those five chapters. And now we've come to chapters six, seven and eight. This is a section. It is a section that deals with the Christian life. Now, you can't have a Christian life until you're a Christian. So you've got to make a commitment to Christ as your Lord and Savior. But what is the Christian life? Why is it lived? How is it lived? How is it lived in a world under the curse of sin? How is it lived in the lives of men and women who have been forgiven of their sin and the power of sin has been broken, but we still got a body of death. We still got an old man that's still within us. How do we do this? How do we handle this? life. That's what chapter 6, 7, and 8 are all about. Chapter 6, there is there are many other texts of Scripture that deal with the Christian life, but there is no other text of Scripture that is more crucial, more foundational, more essential, more comprehensive for the authentic Christian life than Romans 6, 7, and 8. Now, having said that, Let me give you another reason I'm excited and intimidated. It is this. Of those chapters, 6, 7, and 8, with their peculiar emphasis and their specific benefit to us in our Christian life, foundationally and essentially and effectively, they all are built on chapter 6. Verses 1 through 14. This is the distillation text. This is the focused text that you and I must grasp in order to navigate the Christian life, the trajectory on our way to heaven of living unto Christ, in Christ, and for Christ. This is crucial. It is essential, it is foundational, Romans 6, 1 through 14. Furthermore, it ain't easy. It is hard to understand. This text is challenging. It is crucial, but it's not a bumper sticker. It is crucial, 
but it's not a slogan. It is a challenge. We are going to have to gird up the loins of our mind. We are going to have to embrace taking every thought captive. But one of the reasons I'm glad to be here is in my heart of hearts, pastorally and personally, I believe that you, as God's people here, are not averse to being a thinking Christian. You're not averse to loving the Lord with all of your mind. And so you're willing and ready to embrace this text, this crucial text. I'm deeply indebted to a number of the commentators who have done the deep dive into the memoirs of Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps the greatest expositional preacher of the 20th century. Uh, it was his book, Preaching and Preachers, that totally captivated my life. I even had the privilege to preach about him at a, pre- at a recent preachers, preacher's conference and share what his life had meant to me. And it was of an extraordinary blessing in my life. Uh, and I, I just so much... And and one of the things is I got his seven-volume series on Romans. That's right. He preached through Romans, and it's seven volumes, seven-volume commentary. Now, rest easy. When I finish, there won't be enough for seven volumes. I promise that. But it's his seven volumes. But before he ever started, one of his elders came to him. And when his elder came to him, he said to him, we have appreciated your expositional preaching. Pastor, when will you start a series on Romans? And Martin Lloyd-Jones looked at him and said to him, my friend, that's easy. When I understand Romans 6, 1 through 14, I'll be ready to preach on Romans. That's how crucial these verses are. Romans 6, 1 through 14, are so fundamentally essential for your Christian life and my Christian life. Now do you see why I'm excited? (laughs) Now do you see why I'm intimidated? Because one of the ways you grasp something that's hard is God calls preachers and teachers to help you work your way through it. And I don't want to falter at my task. So let's, we're coming to this Romans 6, 1 through 14, but by the way, we haven't been in Romans for six weeks. It's been over a month and a half. And that, see that, look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall, what, um, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace might, uh, that grace might increase? That statement doesn't come out of thin air. That's not been invented to introduce the next paragraph of, um, of Paul's, uh, of Paul's epistle. That statement comes out of the context of what we've been studying now this last year as we've, st- as we've worked our way through the first five chapters. Here is Paul's exposition of the gospel of God. It's a gospel that he says he's eager to preach. It's a gospel that he's unashamed to preach. It's a gospel that he says declares the power of God to salvation. It's a gospel that declares the righteousness of God for salvation. It's a gospel that can 
can and does save any and all who put their trust in him, whether they belong to the category of Jew or whether they belong to the category of Gentile. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, what he is saying is, you're not saved by your works, you're saved by Christ's work. And you obtain the benefits of that work by the the power of God and the righteousness of God by faith. And he gives you the faith whereby you lay hold of him. I'm eager to preach this good news. I'm I'm unashamed to preach this good news. I'm going to go right to the power center of Rome and preach the power of God with no reticence whatsoever. I long to be there. But he says, you need to know this good news is good news. It's amazing. It's glorious. It's astounding. It's astonishing. Why? Because of the bad news. And for three chapters, he lays out the bad news. The bad news to the pagan Gentile in chapters 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. The bad news to the religious pagan, to the religious Gentile, chapter 2. The bad news to the Jew. And the bad news is, everyone who is born dies. And the reason you die is because of sin. And the reason that you sin is we're born sinners. We are born spiritually helpless and hopeless. He even at the end of these three chapters begins to compile the verses from the Old Testament to affirm this. And he declares, there is none who is righteous. No, not one. There is none who seek God. We have all turned astray. There is none who is good. No, not one. When you get to the end, he sums it up. All Jew and Gentile. This is why it's good news to both Jew and Gentile. Oh, here's the bad news. All Jews and Gentiles die. Why? Because we sin. Why? Because we're born sinners. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. No exceptions. We are born helpless, hopeless, unwilling, unable. We're born with a bad heart, a sinful heart. We're born with a bad record, a sinful record. And the wages for those sins is death. Thus, all die. All die. All sin. Why? Because we're born sinners. We're not, we're not sin sick. We're sin dead. We're not floundering in the ocean of spiritual uh, misadventures. No, we're at the bottom of the ocean of sin with a 10 million pound rock upon us. With the question of Job burning upon us. How can a man be right with God when we're all wrong with God? And then Paul says, God 
has the solution. You don't, he does. One time I was in a in a conference and I heard a gentleman share something. And it's a wonderful man. I love him. He's going to remain nameless. And in the context of sharing, he said, you know, God wants you to be saved. Amen. And they all said, amen, rightly so. And then he said, but the problem, but he said, but God has a problem. And when we talked afterwards, he was just asking me some questions. I said, well, brother, first of all, I thank God for your ministry. I only wish to participate in the shadow of it. But I said, just to be a little bit more precise. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God calls upon us to be saved. But God doesn't have a problem. We do. But only God has the solution. And that solution is sure. It is Jesus. And in chapters 4 and 5, he explains you cannot be saved by your obedience to the law. You are saved through Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then when you come to Christ, then when you come to Christ, your life, the power of God gives you a new heart. And the righteousness of God gives you a new record. You now have a new heart. You now have a new record. You're now alive in Christ instead of dead in sin. And now you're alive to Christ. You now have not only a new heart, a new record. you got a new life. And he sums it up in that glorious statement that we started our worship service with. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop there. In chapter 5, he gives five glorious gospel blessings that belong right now to every single one of you who are in Christ and Christ is in you. Number one, you have peace with God. Your warfare is over. Jesus is your peace. You not only have peace with God. Second blessing You have access to God. Instead of being separated from him now and for all eternity in a place called hell, you not only have access to him, he is right within you. You're not only right with him, he is right within you. Thirdly, you rejoice in your sufferings for God. You have peace with God. You have access to God. And you have, you rejoice, he says in Romans 5, in your sufferings for God. And then number four, you, now instead of falling short of the glory of God, remember that? All have sinned and fall short. Now the fourth blessing is your greatest joy is worship and the glory of God. You rejoice in the glory of God. And then number five, he says this, and you are saved, sealed, secured, and are being sanctified by the Spirit of God within you. The Spirit of God within you. All of these blessings. Well, okay, if if I die because I sin, and I sin because I have a sin nature, 
How did I get that sin nature? And if I have now righteousness by grace, how did, where did that grace come from and that righteousness come from? And at the end of chapter five, he gives us the explanation. He says, let me tell you why you die. Because you sin. Why do you sin? Because of your sin nature. Why is your sin nature there? Because when Adam sinned, you sinned. You were in Adam. When Adam sinned, you sinned. So you are born of Adam, dead in your sins with that sin nature, helpless and hopeless, unwilling and unable to come to Christ. No desire to. And then we would say and understand, oh, that's original sin. Now, original sin doesn't mean the very first sin. It means the origin of all sin began in Adam's sin. And that's why we sin. But good news, there's another Adam. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all of his shall be made alive. By the transgression of the one, we died. By the obedience of the one, Christ. Now comes grace. Now comes his righteousness. Now in him, I am born again with a new heart. Now in him, I'm justified with a new record. Now I have a new life that comes from Christ. So the origin of grace and righteousness that saves me is from Christ. Well, Paul knows out there somewhere, somebody's got a question. Wait just a minute. You mean we all died in Adam and then we all are made alive in Christ? Then why in the world is the Old Testament full of the law of God? Why is the law of God there if we're not if the law doesn't have the power to save us and I don't have the power through my obedience to the law to save myself why is the law there and so at the end of chapter 5 he answers that question the law is there to incite your sin to incite your sin the law comes to show you the bad news that will send you to Jesus for the good news. The law exposes your sin. What is sin? It is the transgression of and disobedience and the lack of conformity unto the law of God in thought, word, or deed. And so the law now exposes your sin. And it exposes your sin nature. Because when the law comes, your desire is to rebel against it. That's the sin nature. So it exposes the sin, it exposes the sin nature, and it exposes your inability to save yourself. Then where can I find salvation if not in the law? In Jesus. And you're in Him by grace, not by the law, but by the grace of God that's found in Christ. Where sin comes, where the law comes, sin abounds. But in Jesus... Grace does much more abound. Now, please take a moment with this. He's not saying here is sin and here is grace. See them in comparison. What he is saying is the law incites your sin and shows you your need of a savior. And Jesus, his grace is not comparative to your sin. It is much greater. 
where sin abounds. Grace does. Now listen to this. Grace does much more abound. God's grace in Christ is greater than all of your sin and any sin. All sin. God's grace is greater than any of it and all of it. But Paul knows when he makes that statement, there are going to be those out there thinking, some thoughtfully, some cynically. Oh, wait. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Well, the cynic would sit and say, okay, the law has no power to save me, and I have no power with the law to save myself, and sin is disobedience to the law, and I can't out-sin God's grace. His grace is greater than sin. Let me say that again, because I know you're going to feel uncomfortable with it. I can't out-sin God's Grace. Oh, okay, Paul. It's obviously that you don't have any use for the law. You're, let me give you the word, you're antinomian. You're against, nomos means law. You're against the law. And so I'll tell you what, I'll be antinomian. I won't obey the law. And you know what? I'm doing God a favor. Because God's grace is greater than my sin. The more I sin, the more grace God gives. So here is one bucket of sin, two buckets of grace. I'll tell you what, I'll do two buckets of sin to get four buckets of grace. That's what I'll do. Paul knows the cynic is out there thinking that. In fact, he's already acknowledged he's been charged by being antinomian. That is dismissing the law. He's already been charged with it. He's already mentioned that back in Romans 3. And Paul also knows, though, there are concerned Christians that are saying, Now wait, Paul. Where is the incentive to holiness? Well, let me tell you where it's not. The incentive to holiness is not that I have to do the law to help God save me. The incentive to holiness is not I have to do the law to allow God to save me. The incentive is not I've got to do the law so God is capable of keeping me saved. But there is an incentive to the lawful gospel use of the law. And Paul's going to get to it. And guess where he's going to get to this Christian life that's gospel-saturated and makes a right use of the law? He's going to get to it in Romans 6, 1 through 14. And he's going to get to it by laying out a road map for us, by laying out a, a walking path for us. And in Romans 6, verses 1 through 14, Paul gives us three responses. He gives us his emotional response He then gives us his instructional response. And then he gives us his directional response. He is going to respond to this. He first is going to respond emotionally. Then he is going to respond instructionally. Then he is going to respond directionally. 
In fact, would you take your Bibles, and and we're about at the takeaway now, so if you'll take your Bibles, and if you'll go with me to this Romans 6, let me show you where we're going to be. Spoiler alert for all of you who came to hear me talk about baptism this morning. I'm not going to get there. I'm not getting there. And um, And we are planning on three Sundays in Romans 6, 1 through 14. Paul's emotional response his instructional response, and his directional response. Paul, uh, I had the opportunity in life to play sports, whether baseball, basketball, and football. And my coaches, all of them, particularly my football coaches, they all had two bags of talks. They had two speeches. One, One bag that they had was their inspirational bag. I'm going to inspire you to win this game. Every coach I had, this is for all of the older people here uh, that saw Ronald Reagan uh, in uh, in the movie uh, The Gipper. Uh, My my coach, all of them thought they were Newt Rockney reborn and reincarnated. And, uh, And they had these inspirational talks, the pep talks. But coaches also had instructional talks, not just inspirational, they had instructional. The setting for the inspirational talk was always at the beginning of the game or the halftime and in the locker room. But we also had something else. It was called a skull session. It was a reminder to athletes, your head can be used for something besides a baseball cap and a football helmet. It's X's and O's. And we would have the skull session in a classroom. And he's going to, that's what Paul is doing. Paul has, first of all, his emotional and inspirational response to this blasphemy of the gospel. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He has an emotional response. Then he has an instructional response. He says, get in the classroom. Come on and sit down with me. I'm going to put you in the skull session. I'm going to walk you through this. In fact, take just a moment with me. Take a look at this. He says, do you not what? No, there's something to live the Christian life. You need a theological foundation. Do you not know? And then he takes time to use the sacrament of baptism to show us how arrogant and stupid the notion is that we who are believers will continue in sin that grace may abound. Then he doesn't stop there. He goes to verse um, verse 5, 4. If we were, and then he says, and then verse 6, we know. He constantly says, we know. He says, consider. He says, remember. Look down to verse 9. We know that Christ. Look down to, um, so look down to verse 11. So you must consider from verse 3 all the way down to verse 11, he moves from his emotional response to his instructional theological response. Then, folks, here's something for you to think of between now and next Sunday. He then, in the last verses, verses 12 through 14, does something In what he writes, he has not done for five chapters. He does something in chapter 6, verses 12, 13, and 14, he hasn't done once in five chapters. Harry, what is it? Well, you think about it. Tell me what you think it is next Sunday. 
And I'll give it to you next Sunday. But note he's giving directions. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Do not present the member, your members to sin. Present yourselves to God. Here, he now gives direction. Notice, he doesn't give direction until he makes sure your theology is right. You know who you are, then you do. Because we're not who we are by what we do. We're who we are by what he did. Now we do what we do for him. But where does he start with? An emotional outburst. Let me just finish with this. Do you, look at what he says. What shall we Christians say then? Those who have by faith put your trust in Christ alone for salvation. What shall we say then? Shall we Christians say That we'll continue in sin and create more sin that grace may more abound. Will we say that? There is a phrase out there that when it is used is like, I know, guys, I know this isn't, y'all are iPads, uh, iPhones and everything else. But when I was in school, it was a chalkboard and there would always be somebody that would go to the chalkboard, put their fingernails on it. Yeah, you, you were in the same class. <laughs> there is something I hear rather regularly. I laugh with everyone else, but it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Oh, you're reformed in your theology. Oh, You are Presbyterian. Oh, and they all think this is wonderfully funny and insightful and witty. You're part of the frozen chosen. Do you know why that grates on me? Because first of all, I don't think anyone who grasps theology in its glorious, majestic truth of what God is as creator, redeemer, and sustainer can ever live as a frozen block of ice. That tells me you don't really know your theology. Secondly, secondly, I am pained in my soul For the way those that I'm among, that we might be living to give any credence to that stereotype. It pains me that we even give ammunition to that wayward bullet. Listen, when it comes to worshiping our God... And when it comes to being a witness for our God, there is no one who ought to be more passionately engaged than those who know the truth. And it sets your whole soul free. No one. When the Lord's day comes and Satan wants me to be a part of the frozen chosen in the gathered assembly, mumbling great truths of the gospel, then I ask God, set me free that I might praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
I will not let the stone cry out in my place. I want to be part of those who rise up, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. When the Apostle Paul hears the cynic come with blasphemy against the Savior, against grace, and the grace against the gospel, what does he say? Now, the English Standard Version says that it, that it translates it, may it never be. Okay, that's a valid translation uh, in terms of the grammar and the vocabulary. But I cast my lot with the King James. I cast my lot with the New American Standard Bible. I believe there is an emotional dynamic that must come through and what Paul is reaching for is something he's already used five times and he's going to use more he is reaching for a malediction God forbid this God he invokes the anathema of God upon such blasphemy in the arena of gospel sanctification the Christian life and he calls for it and he demands it he emotionally responds. Now listen, I know you're sitting there saying, no, wait just a minute, Harry. We've heard you say so many times, you don't base your Christian life on your emotions. You base your Christian life on the Word of God that instructs your emotions. Yes, I am not backing off of that. But when God's Word has instructed you by the Gospel and you hear this kind of blasphemy, it's time for the visible, vigorous, vital, Holy Spirit-leashed display of our emotions. Worship and witness for the sanctity of our God, the sanctity of His Word, the sanctity of the Gospel must be an emotional event. It's called to be. So let me conclude with a couple of reminders and the takeaway. Here's my observation. You all get this as we walk away today. Number one is this. If we are not vulnerable to the charge of antinomianism, and I borrowed this and, and rephrased it from myself, from Martin Lloyd-Jones. If we are not in, in vulnerable to the charge of antinomianism, then we have not proclaimed the gospel of God with integrity. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think, who do you think is the most, who do you think would be in the top five of gospel preachers of all time? Do y'all think Paul would make it? We just talked about the situation that we ought to be engaged. So let me try this again. There are top five preachers. Do you think Paul might make the list? Was Paul charged with antinomianism? Yes. Are you a better gospel preacher than him? No. If we're not vulnerable, not guilty, I didn't say guilty. I said vulnerable to the charge of antinomianism, then we have not preached the gospel with integrity. We make it clear God's grace is greater than our sin. My obedience is not necessary to help God. My obedience is the evidence of the power of God. Second thing, if we have not passionately, I put the word there on purpose, if we have not passionately answered the charge of antinomianism, then we have not proclaimed the gospel of God with clarity. So here's your takeaway. We're closing prayer. The takeaway is simply this. 
Paul's emotional response reminds me to remind you, even to lay upon your heart, an authentic Christian is fully invested in the gospel of God out of love to Christ, his people, and the lost. We're fully invested. Yes, my Christian life is not built on my emotions, but it does not eradicate, cancel emotions. We are not only, we are not, listen, brothers and sisters, the Christian life, the Christian life is a wholehearted, whole-souled endeavor. All of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul. When the time comes to worship God, when the time comes to bear witness, when the time comes to answer gospel theological errors, when the time comes, we will not be silent. We will not be silent in worship. We will not be silent in our witness. We will not be silent. We will not be detached. We will not become spectators. We will not become critics. What we will do, led by the Holy Spirit, directed by God's Word, from our mind to our heart, unleash the emotions of our heart through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And when the range of the Holy Spirit come that gives self-control, then we will ventilate Christ-exalting passion and joy. Errors, anathema. Truth, glory be to God. And it is not emotionless. Our Savior, for the joy set before Him, went to the cross. Then will not I, who follow Him, for joy, not follow that Savior. I can't say no to my emotions. I can't be without passion. I know we're all got different personalities. Listen, I know that. I understand that. I understand expressions are different. But our passion is not absent. We passionately, under the direction and reins of the Holy Spirit, defend the faith, proclaim the faith, worship our God, Love and embrace, protect and proclaim and defend and declare the gospel, the word of God, and the majesty of our God. We will not be the frozen. You may call me the thawed flawed, but I am not going to be the frozen chosen. We will have that passion in worship and witness for Jesus Christ. And we're not only ready to give a rational proclamation and defense of the gospel of saving grace we are also passionately and emotionally embracing that moment and the joy of our heart propels the truths of our mind to the public square and for the public glory of God you know Listen, I guess this is so powerful to me because I know my own inclinations. I love the depth of God's Word. I love the intricacy of God's Word. I love the non-contradictory nature of God's Word. I love the consistency of God's Word. I love the clarity of God's Word. I love all of that, and it can easily become a mental exercise for me. But it must not the souls of men and women and eternity, heaven and hell are at stake. And the glory of my God is at stake. It can't be a mere mental formulaic engagement with the truth. It is a truth that sets me free. 
And when I am free, led by the Spirit of God, it brings not only the mind and not only the will, directional and instructional, it brings the heart, emotional. When I was at, by the way, if you haven't signed up, please sign up for our Ligonier Conference. It's going to be a wonderful conference together in just a couple of weeks, which will be our Birmingham Conference on Theology and Life, hosting the Ligonier Regional Conference. This last year was the first time I ever spoke at the National Conference. And uh, after I spoke of the assigned topics, uh, a young man came up to me and said, uh, would you sign the book, uh, my book? And I said, well, certainly. I don't need to. It's already authentic. It's, uh, if you paid for it, it's yours. He said, oh, I just want you to sign it. I said, okay, I'll be glad to. And he said, by the way, is this your first time preaching at the National Conference? I said, yes. And he said, well, can I, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, sure. Ask me whatever you want to. I'll do my best to answer. He said, are you a southerner? And I said, well, what would give you that idea? He said, well, I just listened to you talk and the words you use and all of that. And I just think you're from the south. And I said, and why would you think that? He said, well, your accent gives you away. Listen, when people meet us. Are you a Christian? Our heart should already give us away. He is the joy of our life. And he is our joy for life. Father, thank you for the privilege to be in your word this Lord's Day. Thank you for the glory and majesty of it. I thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he speaks to our hearts. Friend, if you're a believer here today, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you right now. But I also want to say something to any of you here who have not yet come to Christ. May I invite you, call you to him To turn from your sins and put your trust in him. The Christian life awaits you. It's one of heart, soul, and mind. But first you need to come to him alone for your salvation. I'm a sinner. I put my trust in you alone, Jesus. If you want to pray with someone, please see us. Please. Don't leave today. Hopeless and helpless. Leave today with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, here is the first step of our trajectory. The life of Christ is one of the heart, passionate with the truth by which it is informed through the mind. And our life choices are those of passion and joy, even in the midst of brokenness. Through Christ our Lord, I pray this. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org.
or call 205-776-5200.